from Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. How's that for bringing the mood down, that light mood we had a yeah. moment ago? There you go. Sorry. That's the history guy's job. Wow. Sorry, everyone. Thanks, President Felix. Kennedy assassinated in Dallas 60 years ago today, and of course, Walter Cronkite became indelibly linked with history when he broadcast the news on CBS. For radio listeners here in Seattle, a young Brian Johnson was on duty and on the air at Como when word was first spreading that something bad had happened in Texas and shared his memories a decade ago with our resident historian, Felix Bunnell, who's here to play us those cuts again. Yeah, yes, this is from 10 years ago. Brian worked for Como for 53 years. It's a long time. You, you could beat his record, Dave, I think. Um, Maybe not. He's an institution who interviewed everybody in politics and civic leadership for more than half a century and was a familiar face on Como TV for decades. <clears throat> but he got his start in radio, good old superior to television radio. Um, he was a little kid in London during the Blitz and immigrated here and grew up on Vashon Island. His first radio jobs were as a teenager at KAPA in Raymond over in southwest Washington and then sister station KLA in Centralia. He came to Como in 1959, and by November 22nd, 1963, he was the news director, a 27-year-old guy working the day shift in the old Como building at 4th and Denny, doing hourly newscasts on an otherwise typical Friday morning in Seattle. It must have been around 10.30 or so that the alarm went off, and there was a bell system at that time, three bells for an urgent, five bells for a bulletin, 15 bells for a flash. Those triggered alarms with a light inside the newsroom, so somebody would run in and check the wires and see what was happening. I love that analog age. These are all mechanical yeah. devices being triggered over the phone the, lines. The teletype had a bell in it. Yeah, yeah. It's very, it's very, I mean, it's amazing what they could accomplish before the digital age. So the first alarm goes off, maybe five bells, maybe ten. That's a little unclear. So Brian Johnson goes over to the United Press International, or UPI, teletype. It's like a robot typewriter spelling out the news one letter at a time on a big roll of paper. He gets the first dispatch from Dallas from famous correspondent Merriman Smith. And it said three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade today in downtown Dallas. At that point, I turned to Ed Evans, who was also in the newsroom, and said, i got to get on the air. Bring me all of the wire copy from earlier about the arrival at Dallas, what was happening in Dallas, where the parade route was taking the motorcade. And I'll go on the air and ad lib. And I sat there for four minutes, not knowing whether the shots had hit the president, not knowing anything except three shots were fired at the motorcade. You know, and over on CBS TV, that first announcement for Walter Cronkite, not the one we heard, but that first one, was just Cronkite's voice over a slate, you know, a graphic that says Bulletin mm -hmm. CBS News. They went on the air to interrupt As the World Turns, and they did it so quickly, the old TV camera hadn't warmed up yet, warmed up yet so they just had to do a, just a slate, you know, you couldn't actually see Cronkite. So back in Seattle, as it was everywhere, the story was moving fast for Brian Johnson at Como Radio. I doubt if any other station in town was on the air at this point with the story, because... I don't think anybody else had a newspaper wire. And nothing had crossed the radio wires because at this time nobody knew the president or Governor Connolly had been hit. It was about four minutes later that the flash came, 15 bells inside the newsroom, all the alarm lights going off. 
I love that phrase, cross the wire. You don't hear that phrase anywhere about the news crossing the wires coming across. I mean, that's just like, it's just I mean, we great. still talk like that. <laughs> yeah. Nobody knows what we're talking about. <laughs> so, I mean, the assassination of JFK, it's such a monumental story, such a cultural and historical turning point. It's hard to imagine how what we're talking about at this point isn't history yet, as Brian Johnson is there in the old Como radio newsroom, taking in the raw information, processing it, and then sharing it with the audience. That's beyond my ability to fully appreciate. I didn't know what 15 bells could possibly mean. But somebody came in and told me the thing has gone flash. And then the flash was Kennedy seriously wounded, perhaps fatally. And I went on the air with this, you know, and my heart is in my throat at this point. I am a young guy, 27 years old, And I am there trying to ad-lib that the President of the United States has been shot, perhaps fatally. And I had to ad-lib for about another 30 or 45 seconds before finally ABC came on and I was off the air and we joined ABC. Yeah, they went to the network coverage. And later in the day, the national ABC network did include a report from Brian Johnson and some of his interview with Washington Governor Al Rosalini, but they got Brian's name wrong. Out in Washington State, an observation from our correspondent... Byron Johnson of ABC affiliate, KOMO, in Seattle. Governor Rosalini of the state of Washington has this reaction to today's tragic news of President Kennedy's assassination. What a tremendous shock uh, and uh, unbelief that something like this could happen in my country's hidden ground. So, Dave, you've covered some breaking news on the air, some big stuff. Yeah. Any, anything close to this in your memory? 9-11? Well, I mean, well, of course, 9-11, yeah. yeah. But, um, no, I was I was 11, and what I remember from that day is that my sixth-grade teacher broke down in tears. Wow. And, you know, we you, you don't usually see that in the classroom, so we know that something pretty serious had happened, and then we went home, and it was just nonstop for three days. Uh, television, Walter Cronkite, just watching the... Uh, the coverage of this, yeah, um, I didn't. I didn't have any sense of how uh, huge an emergency it was. What the you know global consequences might be. What yeah. the historic consequences might yeah. be. Just that um, it was a rare event. It was a tragic event. I had I had no inkling of the conspiracy theories that it would yeah. spawn and which still propagate. Uh, today, because you're you're just a kid, but yeah. yeah, my teacher in tears was something I won't forget. Yeah, and that that role, that whole like you know, where were you when it happened? Kind of thing. I mean, Brian Johnson probably has the best story of anybody I've ever met, right? Because he's he's there getting the news off the wire and then sharing it with the yeah. with the region, and that's um, that that's amazing how technology was able to do that. And the fact there's these national memories about Cronkite. I love that local radio is doing this kind of thing, and there is this sort of. Local people sharing the story locally and reacting. That's just that's that's what this is all about. I know I get too excited about that that role that radio plays in this kind of thing, but this is just like radio at its best, doing what it yeah. does best, sharing news faster than TV can share it, and more thoroughly probably than TV can share it, interrupting a soap opera with a slate that says, you know, bulletin on it. So Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it, it is amazing how the technology has changed. I mean, yeah. today we would have video within seconds. Right. True. We also I mean, have to think about the implications of that instant access to, you know, how do you vet it that fast? Yeah. Where, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know if the speed at which we get information these days is for the better or for the worse. Well, the one thing we didn't have then was a, was a, 
uh, what shall I say, a an official rumor mill. Right. Yeah. The the wires didn't churn out rumors. The That's wires right. churned out stuff only from reporters. Right. There was no way anybody could hack into the wires. Well, now we and, have social media, right, where we yeah. have the official information coming in, but then also people on the side who claim to have information. So, right. yeah, I mean, it's it's incredible how fast we can get on the radio and share information, yeah. but it's become more difficult to vet that information. But it's still just people with the microphones talking about what's yeah. going on. That's right. That it's hasn't changed a bit in six years. And I think that's awesome. Hope that never changes. Felix Bunnell, all his features are at MyNorthwest.com. And the future of Washington's climate laws may be in the voters' hands. Cairo News Radio's Kate Stone explains what this might mean for drivers. The cost of fueling up in Washington isn't as high as it was this past summer, but it's still more than a dollar above the national average and third highest across the U.S. Some say the state's Climate Commitment Act is largely to blame. It's a regressive tax. It hits people in the pocketbook. Brian Haywood is a hedge fund CEO and founder of the citizen advocacy group, Let's Go Washington. I'm trying to represent people that every day are having a hard time just choosing between groceries and gas. The law, which took effect earlier this year, is designed to put Washington on a path to being mostly carbon free by 2050. As part of that, it forces local companies to buy carbon credits to pay for the pollution they create. When he signed the act into law in 2021, Governor Jay Inslee said, Don't let anybody give you that swill that somehow it's going to increase prices. But according to Haywood, that's exactly what happened. At first, it taxes between 35 cents and 50 cents a gallon on your car, on your commute. So it's really a, a commuter tax. He says companies are unloading their extra costs on consumers, not just at the pump, but the grocery store, too. All that food to get there had to go on a truck that was taxed. At Jackson's Shell Station in Kent, Haywood announced more than 400,000 people have now joined his effort to repeal the Climate Commitment Act. We've got them all in boxes here. So you can see back there that we've got 418,399 signatures we're turning in. They need 324,516 valid signatures. We didn't even have to add, as soon as people heard about it, they were signing. While this climate law passed through the legislature, Washington voters have previously shot down efforts to impose a carbon tax, most recently in 2016 and 2018. Now Haywood hopes it will happen again. I think next year when it comes up on the ballot, they'll reject the, car the cap and trade and they'll vote to repeal it. Supporters of the Climate Commitment Act, like Democratic State Senators Joe Wynn and Marco Leas, acknowledge there's work ahead to improve the state's climate laws. But they say we, quote, can't stop our progress towards a clean energy future, a future that may now be in the hands of drivers across the state. One of them, Joey, says he would vote to end the Climate Commitment Act to see lower gas prices. Uh, they are ridiculously high in Washington because I just travel across country and gas prices are three fifty dollars a gallon everywhere else, if not cheaper. But others like Justin are not convinced the law is the reason we pay more for fuel. Because, I mean, oil is a global market and fuel prices are set by major corporations and cartels. And he says he supports the efforts in Washington to stop climate change. But I don't think just on a space I would vote to repeal that. If the Secretary of State verifies the signatures for the repeal effort, it will be forwarded to state lawmakers who can choose to pass it as written, but they cannot make changes. If the legislature rejects it or takes no action, the initiative will go to next November's ballot. Kate Stone, Cairo News Radio. And Kate is with us here in the big studio. What, is there any polling on this, on uh, how voters may 
they vote? No. Uh, all we know is how they voted in 2018 and 2016, and it was not a close vote. They voted down a carbon tax-related legislation twice, and I believe it was 60% in 2018. Mm-hmm. So it was not it was not a close vote. It was very clear that voters did not want that, and it will be very interesting to see if this actually ends up on the ballot next year. Yeah, now... Where is the money going? So there's always a flip side to these things. You cut a tax, then usually you cut spending somewhere. Yes. So what is this, what is this money earmarked for? Some of the money is going towards free transit rides for youth, mm-hmm. like on King County Metro, for example. And I've actually asked the Department of Ecology where the rest of that money is going. They have not released a detailed plan that I've seen of where they are putting all of that money. We do know they've raised about $1.5 billion so far from the carbon auctions that we've had. Mm -hmm. But where exactly that's all being allocated, it is supposed to all go, according to the law, to fighting climate change in some way or another. But that's a very broad term. All right, that'll be interesting. I'm guessing the polling is going to show this will pass. Well, what's interesting about this is Haywood is actually fronting five other initiatives, including capital gains tax, police pursuit laws, gender-affirming care for youth. He's trying to get them all on the ballot and let voters decide, not state lawmakers. Is he the new Tim Iman? Tough to say. Tough. Huh. To, those, are, those are strong words. Yeah. Thank you, Kate. <laughs> Thank you. Today's commentary deep thoughts about our nude beach. But right now, let's get an update on the latest from former President Donald Trump's civil fraud trial in New York. Because there was an interesting development yesterday. I talked with CBS's Scott McFarlane, asked him about yesterday's proceedings where there were some tears shed by one of the witnesses from the Trump organization. Well, <laughs> that trial still goes and goes and goes. I think our children and grandchildren will be covering that trial before it ends. <laughs> Um, This is the defense portion of the trial. This is when the Trump team has, I I tell you, Dave, weeks to make its case that there wasn't fraud in the uh, (laughs) in the Trump organization. And and ultimately, this is the one Donald Trump's been most engaged in um, because it's it's his money, it's his business. But after four days of testimony and an awful lot of time, it was one of the Trump organization's officials who was crying in court yesterday saying the, you know, the investigations and, and, and this time spent uh, being accused is causing him trauma. It was the Trump Organization controller, Jeff McConney. And I think what it speaks to is, is the bigger issue here, which this was the one that the Trump people seem really invested in. I mean, it's not criminal. Nobody's going to prison here. But this is the one Donald Trump keeps showing up to. This is the one yeah. his kids are piping up about and this is the one where one of his allies is crying on the stand it's it, it just speaks to the moment of, the, of of what this trial means to the trump folks well he wasn't crying in repentance as i understand it he was crying because he feels that this this Correct. prosecution has turned that he did nothing wrong and this prosecution has turned his life into a nightmare yeah i think he's saying he's being harassed or he's being you know he's being um, put upon by having to be subject of this investigation subject of the accusations um, that's kind of parallel to what Trump's been saying, that he's being, you know, he's being victimized through a fraud case. And I think it's colored some of Trump's public statements, too, that he is saying that this is a weaponization of government. And, and of all the posts he's been making, and he makes a whole bunch of them, 
he's a disproportionate number are about this fraud trial that will result in a sum total of zero days in jail for anybody. We're hearing from CBS's Scott McFarlane. And one of the things that's come up many times when I talk about this case with uh, Scott's colleague, legal analyst Dan Rosenbaum, is the argument that what Trump's accused of here, inflating the values of properties, is a common practice among real estate companies in New York City. So the question is, is Trump being specifically targeted for something that is widely done in that industry? It's kind of been the argument, too, that you know this real estate appraisal is more of an art than a science, and anybody who's had to buy or sell a house has, has enjoyed the experience of being part of the real estate market. It's a real thrill ride. Um, I, I think that's, 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 some, that's part and parcel of the defense here, Dave. That, you know, this is what you do in New York real estate. You, 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 make, you make a statement about the size and the value of something, and you set the market to a degree. But the New York Attorney General has been unambiguous here that this is a scope and size of fraud that is unique and that it needs to be um, put in court and somebody needs to be held accountable. And that's where we are now as we enter yet another month of this case. So so have any other real estate moguls stepped up to say, look, we do this all the time, too? Well, they have the opportunity to put witnesses on the stand to make that argument. And that's kind of what, what the, the defense is indicating it's going to do, that it's going to say that now these valuations Trump had, they're pretty legitimate or they're, they're symmetrical to other things you'd see in major real estate you know, in, in New York City. Um, they'll get there. It, 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 this is going to be a case that, that spans into December, likely potentially well into December. Mm-hmm. And that's where that's the trajectory of this defense. And we're still waiting for testimony from from uh, bank officials on whether they were somehow what exploited here. Well, I think the argument that the attorney general has been making through the course of this trial is that whether or not these banks are made whole, whether or not the banks ended up getting their money back, this type of fraud um, is pernicious and dangerous that ultimately if there's not a deterrence here, there's a potential for, for many other banks and many other ways to be victimized in the future. And though this is not a criminal case, there seems to be this argument that there needs to be deterrence uh, against others from doing what Trump did. Yeah, well, I mean, you could argue that stuff like this is what caused the 2008 economic collapse, inflating real estate values, right? Yeah, you, can go, you, can go, you go back, when you start inflating the value of things, you get to the, uh, to the collapse of 1929, too. But that's absolutely right. CBS correspondent Scott McFarland. Thank you, Scott. Happy Thanksgiving. 7.20 on Seattle's morning news. Also in the news this morning, House Republicans have issued a subpoena to an assistant U.S. attorney as part of their investigation into the handling of the tax evasion case against Hunter Biden. From the Associated Press, here's Norman Hall. The subpoena calls on Leslie Wolf, the U.S. attorney for Delaware, to appear before the House Judiciary Committee by December 7th. Republicans are demanding answers for what they allege is Justice Department interference in the years-long case into the president's son. The subpoena to Wolf is the latest in a series of demands committee chairman Jim Jordan and fellow Republican chairman have made as part of their sprawling impeachment inquiry to President Joe Biden. Their nearly year-long investigation has failed to uncover evidence directly implicating the president in any wrongdoing. Norman Hall, Washington. There's a new study on the climate footprint 
of the super-rich. UCBS News foreign correspondent Elaine Cobb. New research finds the richest 1% of the world's population is responsible for more than twice the carbon emissions of the poorest 50% of the world. British charity Oxfam and the Stockholm Environment Institute report the mega-rich have an unequal influence on the climate and not in a good way. The study found, for example, that the emissions of the super-rich in 2019 were enough to cause 1.3 million excess deaths due to heat. Elaine Cobb, CBS News. This is not about rich people emitting a lot of carbon because of what they do in their personal lives. It's based on what's called investment emissions, the carbon emissions of the companies that billionaires invest in. More research, this time researchers linking food insecurity with dementia. Among other things, here's CBS's Michael George. Food insecurity leads to a greater risk of dementia and faster memory decline. A study in JAMA Network Open looked at 7,000 older Americans. Those who experienced low or very low food security have higher odds of dementia and also have worse memory scores. Both factors led to faster age-related declines. And that's not all. Even if you have plenty of food... Eating ultra-processed foods may increase the risk of developing head, mouth, and throat cancers, according to a study published in the European Journal of Nutrition. Examples include sodas, fast food, and packaged snacks. Researchers found eating these types of food just 10% more than the average person often leads to an increase in cancer risk. There you go. Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah. (laughs) Taking all the fun out of life. I know. Well, that's what the news does. Beaches in the Buff. This morning's commentary sponsored by Wafed Bank. Yesterday, we reported on a proposal by the Seattle Parks Department to install a children's playground at a tiny beach on Lake Washington that for 50 years has welcomed nudity, although it is not labeled as such. The money for the playground came from a civic-minded donor whose name has not been revealed. However, I noticed that the park is nestled among private estates that, according to Zillow, are worth between 16 and $19 million. And so there is some suspicion that a well-to-do neighbor figured the squeals of little children would be a pretty effective nudity deterrent. However... Before we dismiss this as just another version of the get-off-my-lawn syndrome, here's a scenario for you. You're searching online for a new park to visit, and you see this green space you never heard of right on the lake. It's clearly listed as a public city park, so you pack a picnic, gather up the kids, and as you're unloading, a cheerful guy strolls by buck naked. Your first thought is, A, wow, cooler than I thought. B, I should introduce myself. C, I should do what the Bible says and offer this person my cloak. Or, D, this was a bad idea. The point is that public spaces, to be public, should be places where everyone can feel comfortable, which means we may have to rein in our eccentricities. For me, that would mean resisting the temptation to break into a Gilbert and Sullivan patter song. For others, it might mean wearing a baseball cap over the Satan tattoo on your forehead And for those who want to exercise their bodily freedom, it might mean having a bathrobe handy so that your intentions aren't misunderstood. Not that it's necessarily lewd to go naked. It's just that this is Seattle, not Brazil. The climate here doesn't exactly scream nude. It doesn't even scream Speedo. It screams wetsuit. For me to enjoy the water, I dress like a Navy SEAL. Now, when global warming finally kicks in, and don't worry, it shouldn't be too much longer, it'll be different. But until then... Unexpected nudity at a Seattle beach sends a very different message. Bottom line, in a city where we designate bike lanes, bus lanes, toll lanes, carpool lanes, beaches need clearly marked nudity lanes. 
accessible with a good-to-go naked pass, and of course, a mandatory sunglasses rule so it doesn't get awkward. And now, a Seattle's Morning News exclusive, one-on-one with the MC of the Westlake Park tree lighting. Here she is. The queen of Cairo. Ursula Royting. Good morning, Whoa. everybody. Oh, that intro. Yes. Thank you so With much. Fresh <laughs> blowout. And yeah, she's looking gorge, people. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to keep the look going all the way mm-hmm. to Friday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So Friday, it's actually gonna be uh Mickey Gomez and I are going to be the uh hosts on the tree lighting celebration, which We'll start the the actual tree lighting, and it's that beautiful 45-foot tree Mm -hmm, right at Wesley Park. And it is a magical event. It is a magical time. And I know there are a lot of people like, oh, my gosh, I'm not going to deal with the traffic and the crowds and everything. Last year, G and I did it, and everything came together because it was a very rainy night. And I thought, oh, no one is going to show up. Well, suddenly the skies cleared, crowd came in. It's a Christmas miracle. It was a Christmas (laughs) miracle. It was a Christmas miracle. And it just was a great kickoff to the season. It really is. It used to be tradition for my mother and I to go down to downtown the day after Thanksgiving, get all of our shopping done. Yes. I hear what you're saying about the crowds and the, you know, all of this. And yeah, that's part of the stress. You find your parking, you pay like $100, right, to park downtown <laughs> okay, all day. Cheaper than that. Well, <laughs> I know, yes. And some of those parking garages are expensive, but that's part of it once you get there and you're yeah. part of the hustle and bustle and you're eating your breakfast, lunch, dinner down there. It, yeah, it gets you in the mood for the season. So it try really to make it work. It does. Well, I would love it if you guys would show up. Uh, 3.30 is when there are going to be uh, musicians. And I'm going to tell you, it is a whole family fun event because there are some special guests, including... Yeah. Santa. What? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Santa. Whoa, 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 yes. whoa, whoa. Yeah, just a full stop. Uh, how did this you early? Santa? How do you get Santa this time of year? Uh, well, he's very, very, very busy. Yeah. But we do have a special relationship. Wow. You know, when you've done things for a while, you know, <laughs> you can pull some strings. I see. Yeah. What do you do for the tree lighting ceremony? Because I know, you know, they light up the tree. They've got the star, the Macy's. Do they still have the Macy's star? Yes. Yeah. And so what are they? So they're singing. They're, they're singing. What's yeah, your So part? they're singing uh, prior to that. And then um, uh, Mickey and I will come out on stage. Uh, we will introduce the mayor. So the mayor will be out there. Okay. And then uh, we will do, and then, too? you know, special guests. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, um, and then we'll do the big countdown. So okay. it's it's yeah. There's so it's a be- countdown. There is a countdown. countdown. So I need to work on Just my like counting Year's. backwards from the number ten. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even though I know they have professionals testing all of this, I still yes. get nervous at these events. Oh, for they the do people too. putting them on. Oh, yeah. that the tree's not going to light up at yes. the end of ten ninety six. Oh yes. <laughs> like I take on that stress for them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So there's a, so we got a script and uh, they they showed us the. Basically, how it's choreographed. So there, yeah. you know, and and if something goes wrong, I mean, because they got to get the fire marshal mm-hmm. uh, to get to give the okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot that there's a lot of planning that goes into this very of short, course. condensed amount of time. <laughs> well, now, but it's going to be tons of fun, and you know what, my family's going to be there. If you have said, "Hey, the boys I want to meet," yes, yeah, the boys Ooh. are coming in. Uh, yeah, so would love to meet all you out there. Now, do you get to push the button? Mm. The actual button, no. or is that is that no, top I, secret? We, yes, or, no. There's there's someone 
much, a, much, much more qualified than I am to push so that. So there's a professional button, button Yes, pusher. I just do the, well, yeah, Mickey and I will do the counting along with mayor and the whole crowd. The whole crowd gets into it. Yeah. I mean, it is just truly a magical event. And if you think, okay, if you're one of those, and I know there are many, uh, who say, well, you know, it used to be such a wonderful thing and I used to go downtown, but I just haven't done it in a long time. Check it out. See for yourself. You can make the judgment yourself if you think it is improved. Yeah. Okay. I'm just, <laughs> you know what dare. I mean? I still I have some questions here, though. I out how great it is. I got some questions here. So yes. let me just get this straight. They're trusting you to do the countdown, uh-huh. but they don't trust you to press the button. <laughs> well, I can pretend What's... to press the button. I just like being truthful. I'm mm. not the one to press the button. They've mm. got to have all the okays. Everything needs to be all, all Let's ducks see. need to be in a row. That's right. It's being before run they by can do the it. city, it's... so there's got to yes. be documents and triplicate. <laughs> and there has to be a <laughs> permit. There needs to be a task force and a committee. And an environmental impact statement. Don't forget the czars. Ursula, since it's Thanksgiving tomorrow, what are you thankful for? I'm thankful for my family, which I always start there. Uh, I am so thankful that our boys are doing well, that my husband's doing well. Um, You know, I lost my dad this year. Mm -hmm. uh, So this has been kind of a tough year. And um, we're dealing with, with, you know, trying to help uh, our moms. So Mm -hmm. my husband, my mother-in-law and my mom um, trying to help them um, have as comfortable, uh, you know, Mm Transition. Transition. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about, Dave. Yes. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I'm so thankful for that, but I'm also thankful for the opportunity that I have here at mm-hmm. Cairo mm-hmm. to have a show, to work with people as wonderful as all of you. And I say it and it sounds so cliche, but I really feel like our listeners are family and I have great relationships with our listeners and I, and I'm so thankful for that. You do. When you say, come out and see me at the Christmas tree lighting, say hi, you mean it. I know, I really do yes. mean it. <laughs> You're going really to hug everybody. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> be warned, you will get a hug. <laughs> I think that once the new city council is in panel, there should be a resolution that lets you push the button next year. Well, I, yeah, you know what, I'll work on that. If I get to do it a third year in a row, then yeah. yes, maybe I get to push. By then, well, you'd just, have, you have the experience to be able to push the button. I, <laughs> yeah. Can I just ask you guys real quick, though, what you guys are thankful for? Oh, my gosh. Oh. We're running out of time. I know. Too much. Uh, everything. Just being here. Yeah. Right? Just being here. <laughs> no, really. Let's keep it simple. Yes. Yeah. I'm happy yeah. to wake up. <laughs> Especially at my age. Where's Leroy team will not be pushing the button. <laughs> Thanks, guys. At tomorrow's big tree lighting. Uh, Friday's big tree lighting. In about 20 minutes, a new vending machine at the Aldwood Mall, promoting the spirit of giving. Our James Lynch will have the full story. But right now, we'll talk about something that seems to be a problem, ironically, around the holidays. It's sadness and the power of sadness. Colin, you spoke to somebody who's written all about this. That's right. His name is Brandon Stosey. He's the author of Sad Happens. He collects stories of sadness from a variety of people to explore the concept of being sad, something we often try to avoid, but it can be helpful to learn from others. Brandon says his observations on sadness began on social media. I run a lot. I'm, I'm a jogger, an avid jogger. And so while I was out jogging one day, I was jogging towards someone and noticed they were crying. And so that day I just tweeted, saw a guy crying while jogging. Um, and a lot of people reacted to that saying, oh yeah, I, I cry all the time when I run or I this or that. And I noticed that there was just a huge response to this kind of offhanded tweet that I'd made where I wasn't really looking to get much of a reaction. I just thought, oh, it's interesting. 
And then once I noticed that one person, I just started noticing more. And, and I, I sort of make a, a a joke in the book about it, where it's one of those things where, you know, you're driving around in a, in a dirty car. And the second you wash your car, you start noticing everyone else's are dirty when yours was dirty, like five minutes ago. And so it's one of these things where once I noticed one person crying, I just started seeing more and more people crying. And it was almost like they knew I was looking. And so they were just like hovering around me as I walked around New York or jogged around New York. So I would just start tweeting more and more about it. And each time people reacted with these, these, you know, retweets and big thoughts about it. And there's this one tweet I had had where I saw someone on a subway and uh, she held up her phone. She was crying and she held up her phone and took a selfie, like sort of composed herself and smiled and then put the phone back down and then started crying again. Hmm. And that tweet um, ended up with just like, you know, millions of views on it. And I thought, wow, this is interesting. Like people are really taken by the idea of just like human emotion in public spaces. So I started gathering it together. And the initial idea was like, well, maybe I'll just make like a little chat book or like a small little, almost like little poems or something. Mm -hmm. Then I thought, you know, it's not interesting if it's just me writing about people I saw. I'm kind of curious why people were crying. So then I just started asking people for stories about why they're crying. Because that's the one thing I never did with these observations in public. I never stopped somebody. I never said, hey, why are you crying while jogging? Like, why are you crying while eating a corn muffin? You know, tell me your story. I would just kind of look at them and then catalog it in my head and then move on. So the book was more like, hey, let's actually take a break and um, yeah, pause and say, hey, tell me your story. Like, Why did you cry? What's one time that you cried? Once you started paying attention to sadness or crying, wherever that crying came from, did it change mm-hmm. you? Yeah, I think, you know, I it's I feel like it's, you know, I have two, two kids and uh, t- two sons. And I feel like when I was raised, I was always told it's, it's okay to cry. And I think when you become a parent... You find yourself crying more like I saw the other day um, some someone tweeted uh, as you get older, you cry more. And I found that I think that's true. And so I feel like um, I've always been okay with tapping into emotion. And I think I myself have like cried while jogging. And so I would definitely notice more of the times that I was moved by something or if I was listening to a song or if I was uh, taken by something or sometimes like you can cry off the weirdest things. Like I was talking to a friend earlier. And they were reading the book and there's a a piece in there where this guy goes to a Taco Bell and the guy at the Taco Bell um, is crying. You know, the guy that's like when he goes to the drive through and my friend was like, yeah, she just started crying for some reason. Reading this piece about this guy at a Taco Bell crying. She's like, I'm not sure why, but I did. I think it's one of those things where sometimes you see someone yawn. So then you find Mm -hmm. yourself yawning or you find yeah, someone cries, you start crying. So definitely, like, I think as I started paying more attention to it, I would also start cataloging and keeping track of um the moments that I might have been uh, a sad myself. Releasing those emotions. We're talking with Brandon Stosi, author of the book Sad Happens, and we're exploring sadness and crying. And I know I've cried out of anger, out of relief, out of happiness, out of sadness. And so I asked Brandon if he found out why we have such a variety of emotions connected to shedding a tear. It's interesting. There's like a few people in the book. There's a couple of therapists who contributed. There's someone who's his job, you know, he was a professor. He's retired now, but he studied tears, like specifically tears and why Mm -hmm. people cry. And everyone has different theories, you know, like, but for me, like the one in the book, the writer Hanif Abdurraqib, his is the first piece in the book because it's um, in alphabetical order. And his is like he his theory of why you cry. And he's a poet. He's not a, a scientist or a, a, a professor. But he basically says, you know, when you're crying, you're somewhere above the people on the on Earth that you love. And you're somewhere just a bit beneath the people who have died. Um, and you're between those two. And so you're not with any anyone, any of your loved ones. And I was like, that sounds to me like the most believable reason, even if there's scientific proof for other reasons. So I think in the book, you know, people have all their theories and um, 
I, you know, it's, I think for everyone, it's unique. What's interesting is there's 115 contributors in the anthology and everyone in it has a story of when they've cried and, and there's no two that are alike. And even if people are maybe both crying because of like an airplane or this or that, everyone has their own reason of why they think they're crying or sometimes they don't know why they're crying. Mm -hmm. But I think it's one of these largely inexplainable things. Like even the professor, he has his theories about why people cry, but he's not hundred percent sure. Um, and I think we're often not even sure why we ourselves are crying. Like you just get triggered by something or something happens and you're like, wow, why am I crying at this moment? Like, why am I suddenly, <laughs> uh, you know, why am I suddenly yeah. upset about this or not even upset? Like, why am I suddenly moved by this thing that doesn't seem that moving actually? Um, yeah, it's hard. It's funny. Like when I have a younger brother and we were kids, we would often find ourselves laughing at inappropriate times and we would not be able to stop. Like once we started, we would just keep laughing. And I think that sometimes happens too. Like you're, you're crying and you're like, why am I crying? And you just can't stop for some reason. It was certainly cathartic to read through his book. And I think what we're getting to in this interview is, is the idea of the more you talk about sadness, the more you talk about, oh, he's crying, the less lonely you feel, the easier it becomes to uh, hold those emotions and not be ashamed of them or feel like you need to hide at work. People cry at work and they, they feel the need to go hide themselves. Right. And I've experimented before where I've felt sad at my desk and I just kind of sat there and let the emotion pass and people saw that. And Hey, how are you doing? How you, you know, so you don't yeah. have to be alone in your sadness, I think is the idea. And the more he started paying attention to it, the better he felt about going, yeah, let's explore a range of emotions. Cause he alluded to the whole boys don't cry thing, right? Like he grew up in a progressive household where it was okay to cry, but so many men are told you don't cry. Yeah. I find the older I get, the less inhibited I am about uh, right. showing emotion. Was you have mentioned with, that, with that you dad, feel like you cry more the older you get. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, especially lately seeing what's happening to kids in the it's, Middle East, there's uh, yeah. no excuse for that. So yeah, I'm tearing up not just thinking about it. That's exactly. why I, had to, I have to suppress the thought. I can't do my job. Yeah, but but, I, uh, but it's yeah. good. I'm glad that, that people can hear that emotion in your voice because it helps other people go, oh yeah, okay, so it is okay to feel sad. It is okay it to cry, is. even as a news person, I even mean, as this. Like, you're, we're, we're, everything we do, we do for a reason. There's some, yeah. if nothing else, a biological reason. Your, your mind needs to accept what has happened, deal with it, and then learn how to move on. But yeah. first you have to uh, admit that it's there. Absolutely. And if you don't, it gets bottled up inside of you. So let's all cry together. And that is Mickey time. Mickey wants to talk about food waste this morning because she's, she thinks that people are going to overcook for Thanksgiving. Is that what this is? Well, well, yeah, they usually do, Dave. According to the Times, uh, the U.S. spends about $440 billion a year on this particular day. 2% of the country's gross domestic product to produce a meal that no one's going to eat. Well, but we're going to look at it. We're going to look I mean, at it. It's going to be pretty. We're going to Instagram it. We're going to do all the things, right? Yeah. But a lot of the food is going to go to waste. So we've got some tips here to help everyone kind of figure things out. And I heard Colleen talk about, <laughs> what did you say? Waffle dressing or waffle potatoes? Waffleizing the stuffing. Yeah, you just oh. place the stuffing on a waffle iron and you, you grill it down into a nice stuffing waffle. And then you can put gravy on top of it or mm. what? you can make those waffle pieces into a sandwich, right? So now this you've got great. waffle bread made out of stuffing. With turkey and cranberry, you know, all the fixings. I am literally sitting here jaw dropped and I'm going to go I'll to the store after work and I'm going to buy a waffle machine because <laughs> I've got to try this. <laughs> there are waffle irons are all over thrift stores, too. You, know, you don't have to spend a lot of money. Well, 
there's a Ross right over here. So okay. maybe I'll go there. But at any rate, so th these are the tips. All right. So leave room for seconds. I always get a small tasting of just about everything. So, you know, I don't like to go in and pile everything on the plate because, you know, you always you always have that one person that's like I, I it's like they're never going to eat again. Right. They, they just pile everything on the plate. Well, not this case. Leave room for seconds. Get a small taste of everything. Have a plan for leftovers. Okay, so we're gonna make the waffle dressing, the waffle stuffing, whatever you call it. I, I call it dressing. Do you call it stuffing or dressing? I call it stuffing. Okay, all right. Um, we make turkey noodle soup. This year, gonna we are gonna make the waffle dressing, um, mashed potato pancakes, turkey sandwiches. Just have a plan on what you're gonna do with those leftovers. I also like to keep those disposable, like those Ziploc containers yes. that are super cheap and throw it. Cause then as people leave, you can just like put your leftovers on them, right? Just exactly. send them with a takeaway. Yes, we've got 13 extra to go bins that everyone is leaving our house with tomorrow. So if you're coming over to our house tomorrow, you're leaving with food. You can also this hand them out, mm -hmm. right? Like you can, yeah. you know, if somebody doesn't want to take, like hand them out to somebody who might be on the street. Yeah, force still. them to take them. Yeah, exactly. Like force here, eat some eat. food, right? Like there are people <laughs> right. out there who want to eat too. Yeah. yeah. Eat, donate, and compost. I thought this was a really interesting um, idea, but it, and it might sound weird. You're like, donate your food that you've already cooked. But yeah, you know what? Like you said. I've got 13 extra bins that everyone is going to be leaving the house with. Just say, here, take the food. But also, if you know someone who might have food insecurity, maybe you know a couple of seniors who aren't going to be celebrating Thanksgiving with their family. Maybe you could put together a couple plates for them. Donate dinner. Um, donate means just make sure that everyone leaves with a plate or ask someone, hey, can I bring you a plate? And I really like that idea because it's kind of it's it's like giving back to the community. You know? I never ask. People always say no when you ask them, right? Be like, no, that's OK. Just bring it to them. Just mm -hmm. <laughs> offload your I'm, food on your I'm, neighbors. I'm surprised that you're saying people are in the habit of throwing food away with food prices the way they are. Why would you throw anything you away? Yeah, I that burns me up. When I open up my refrigerator and I see food that my kids haven't touched yet, and I'm like, we paid ten dollars for this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I feel like my parent children. now. Yeah. Huh? I, it's, it's the age old. You know, they're starving children, and you yeah. know, you were always oh, yeah, guilted no. into eating because of that. Right. Absolutely. And we shouldn't be throwing food away. And you know, you can compost. Dave or, or Colleen, do either of you compost, or do you know how to yeah. compost your food outside of what we normally do in the kitchen? Can you compost it and put it in your yard? Do either of you do that? Yeah. Yeah. yeah you got to add some leaves in there, give it something to munch on, turn it every once in a while. I compost. I have 30 years of compost in that yard now. <laughs> Are you serious? This is something that well, I need to learn leaves, and I've got to talk yeah. to you more about. Mostly leaves. But yes, I use it as part of my landscaping now. I think the neighbors are used to it, but I'm not sure. So uh, those are some pretty good tips, and mm -hmm. uh, you. and you're and you're okay because I know you've you've been very upfront about your your uh, diet problems, and you're okay with Thanksgiving. I'm absolutely okay with Thanksgiving. Yeah. I'm excited for Thanksgiving this year, and I'm looking forward to just feasting and get like I said, just getting a taste of everything mm -hmm. in small amounts, and I'm going to be just fine. Yeah, right. Mickey Gomez. Thank you, Mickey. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you too.